It's the 3rd of August, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week, the consequences of gout when it gets hospitalized. What is the true risk of psoriatic arthritis in patients with psoriasis? And if you're a mother who has rheumatoid arthritis, do you confer some risk to your offspring? What if it wasn't just rheumatoid arthritis? This week we have a lot of news, but before that I want to give you a, a, some information about two important lectures coming up on August the 11th, that's next week. It's going to be Capital City Rheumatology Review in Washington, D.C. This is being run by arthros.org, as which I'm a part of. That'll be hosted by Sergio Schwartzman with a fabulous faculty. The week following, I'll be running the meeting in Nashville, the Music City Rheumatology Review on August the 18th. Both of these have stellar faculties, free programs, free registrations, a CME course. Uh, if you're a fellow and you're traveling to the meeting, we can pay for your hotel night. So go register and then email us and they'll pay for your hotel room. If you're a fellow, you gotta be a fellow to do this. So anyway, great meeting, be there. I think you'll really enjoy it. We had a great meeting last week in Chicago, what was called the Great Lakes meeting. Uh, and we're gonna repeat that in the next few weeks as well. So this week at the top of the news, we have a report from the New England Journal yesterday about treatment of latent TB. Specifically, it compared the outcomes of the standard regimen, isoniazid, for nine months compared to the alternative regimen of four months of rifampin. Um, previous to this, it was known that, uh, that uh, isoniazid, nine months, was grade A evidence and that rifampin was grade B evidence and that isoniazid for six months was grade B evidence. This is a, a trial of patients with LTBI, over 6,000 patients, I believe, who received either four months of rifampin at 10 milligrams per kilogram up to uh, a dose of 600 milligrams, or nine months of isoniazid, five milligrams per kilogram, again, up to 300 milligrams per day. It was a non-inferiority trial, and yes, rifampin was not inferior to the standard of isoniazid, but, uh, rifampin had a better completion rate and had less overall toxicity, suggesting that the shorter regimen of rifampin might be the better way to go. Shorter regimens are being recommended. A lot of uh, experts are using them. Uh, at this last week's meeting in Chicago, Dr. Kevin Winthrop gave a fabulous talk on management and prevention of infection. When talking about LTBI, he said his preferred regimen was his 3-HP, a high-dose isoniazid and rifapentin given once a week uh, for three months. Uh, better tolerated, uh, again, shown to be non-inferior to isoniazid nine months at standard doses, but a better completion rate and better safety. They're using a handful of pills, but it's given once a week, uh, and the doses are out there and published. Up to 900 milligrams a week of rifampin, up to 900 milligrams a week of, uh, of isoniazid. That's rifapentin, not rifampin. They're almost the same. So think about that when managing patients with latent TB, a positive PPD or positive quantiferon, no signs and symptoms, and a negative chest X-ray. If they're gonna be on a biologic, uh, and they have our diseases, they really need to be prophylaxed. An uh, interesting report comes from the, the uh, Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Um, this is a, a look at the risk of developing psoriatic arthritis in psoriasis patients. Specifically, it's a meta-analysis of almost a million individuals and shown that the risk of developing psoriatic arthritis was 20%.
Now, often quoted is a number of around that, or 30% by Daphne Gladman, but this has got a lot of numbers behind it, and it's a pretty reliable study, it looks like. What I liked about this also was the risk in children and adolescents who had psoriasis, and there the risk of psoriatic arthritis is only 3.3%. Good news for Pfizer and tofacitinib. This week, the EU, specifically the EMA, approved the use of tofacitinib in adults who have active ulcerative colitis, not otherwise responding to DMARDs or biologics. Uh, again, it's a 10 milligram BID dose, mirrors what's happened here in the United States, further expanding the use of a JAK inhibitor now outside of arthritis. So this is sort of good news. And this seems to work fairly well according to the gastroenterologists. Another interesting study comes from the Mayo Clinic and Eric Madison's group, where in the Journal of Rheumatology, they talked about their cohort of 429 gout patients who were followed over time. And they showed that when they were hospitalized, gout patients had a tenfold increased risk of developing a gout attack. We see that all the time, but I don't know if you ever had a number associated with that, and that's a tenfold increased risk. That's sort of substantial, but more important may be the fact that if they did have a gout attack while being hospitalized for any reason, that it lengthened the stay of hospitalization by an average of 1.8 days, two days. That's at a considerable cost. This speaks strongly to the fact of, that we need to be aware of this complication. We need to uh, have these patients in good shape and then quickly treat them so that they don't incur more cost and longer hospitalizations. Another interesting study on gout and its consequences comes from the UK and Taiwan, where they looked at over a million individuals, I'm sorry, 100,000 patients who have gout and incident gout, and specifically looked at the risk of having downstream joint replacement surgery. Turns out that in the two databases, one there was a 14% increased risk, the other a 56% increased risk of having subsequent total joint replacement. The sad and interesting thing about this is that for those patients who are on chronic urate-lowering therapy, the rates were no different. That what seemed to be effective gout management didn't prevent the subsequent need for joint replacement. I think that actually speaks to either a different biology of gout, may very well speak to that gout still isn't very well managed, not by those who are managing most cases. So there's a lot of suboptimal management that's going on. I think that, again, this is a call to action for primary care and rheumatologists and those who are involved in gout care. Uh, positive results comes from an interesting study out of Israel, reported in Reuters this week, that the phase three study of RHB 104 gave very good results in patients who are getting RHB 104 for their Crohn's disease. What is RHB 104? Well, it turns out to be an antimycobacterial drug, antibiotic drug with anti-inflammatory properties that in phase two trials look fairly good. And it's now been mirrored in a phase three trial. The idea here is the hypothesis is that Crohn's disease may be caused by mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis for which this RHB 104 is highly effective. Well, why is this interesting to me, the rheumatologist, and to you, the person who's listening to the guy who might be interested in this? Well, it speaks to the similarities between Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. I've always had the crazy suspicion, and I'm full of them, as you know, that rheumatoid arthritis is ultimately going to be proven to be an infectious disorder um, with a therapy that was otherwise overlooked that would treat that infection. Now, whether that's a mycobacterial species or viral species, it remains to be seen, but I'll be proven sometime right in, in, my, in my lifetime, and, um, and when I'm not, you'll remind me of that, I'm sure. 
But I think that I, I like the parallels here. I think it'll be interesting to see how this proceeds in the management of Crohn's disease. Uh, looking at uh, a, a several large databases out of Korea uh, and looking at almost 7,000 consecutive hip and femoral fractures, the risk of having an atypical femoral fracture was shown to be 2.95%. That included 90 subtrochanteric and 106 femoral shaft fractures. Risk factors for these atypical femoral fractures was osteoporosis, osteopenia, rheumatoid arthritis, um, abnormalities in the curvature of the, uh, of the femur or the, the, uh, the thickening of the femoral shaft was a, a prognostic sign of some sort. But this is uh, data coming from Osteoporosis International and speaks to something that we see as well and that this is still a very uncommon phenomenon. A nice study out of uh, either the UK or France, I think it's France, but they're close by and the data were probably the same in both countries. 72 patients with ankylosing spondylitis or rheumatoid arthritis who went on to switch from the originator etanercept to the biosimilar SB4, the etanercept biosimilar, showed that there was a very favorable experience. Good switchover, good experience, positive experience uh, as viewed by the patients in 85% of those cases. However, 15%, not so much. Who were those people? Well, it turns out they were older, had more established disease, um, were obviously chicken littles because they were worried about generics, and that was one of the reasons why they didn't want to switch to this generic kind of biologic drug. I, again, I think these are lessons to be learned as we are going to adopt um, biosimilars in the future once we get over this uh, rebate system and incentivized use of existing biologics. Uh, when that's fixed by the current administration, maybe um, uh, we'll see biosimilars have some growth in the United States. But it's going to be an uphill road, and it's going to be fostered by physician attitudes and patient attitudes, which is what's operative here. What we've learned by looking at what's gone on in Europe is that when they're forced to make changes, everyone benefits. The docs ultimately don't get so wigged out about it. The patients accept it. Everyone does well. And there's significant cost savings. What they're offering us here in the United States so far is not what's being offered in, in Europe. And I think that uh, until that changes, uh, we won't be seeing many biosimilars in use. So where are we? Another thing that won't go away in the news is opioids. Uh, a report out of, on the, out of, from the British Medical Journal looked at Medicare use of opioids and shows shamefully that the opioid use uh, problem isn't going away and that our use of opioids still remains high that while the plateau in prescriptions and overdoses um, seems to have plateaued prior to 19, 2015, that the equivalent use of, of methadone or meth morphine units still remains high, and in fact, it may be going up, such that the quote from the article is that the United States has the per capita highest rate of opioid use in the world. Double that of the second place Germany and seven times that what's being used in the United Kingdom. On average, 40 people die every day from an opioid overdose in the United States, and that still is fourfold higher than the rate that was seen in, in, in uh, 1999. Uh, these trends are, are disturbing. Uh, so disturbing that the New York Times has a sort of uh, feature article on what's happened during this opioid um, crisis, uh, and they're finding that there's more use of intraspinal depomedrol injections. A very long article, but very eye-opening, shows that that in in the wanting to stay away from opioids, a lot more doctors are open up these uh, opening up these clinics where they're giving intrathecal uh, 
paraspinal facet and or epidural injections um, to relieve, alleviate back pain. Uh, and, and it turns out that this is not really with the uh, consent or wishes of the manufacturer, which is Pfizer. Pfizer went to the FDA pointing out that there was a lot of off-label use and there was associated with a lot of adverse events. And the FDA's response to this several years ago was to issue stronger warnings against off-label use and what the risks may be. Well, a review of FDA data between 2004 and 2016 discloses over 2,400 serious problems arising from Depomedrol intraspinal injections, and that includes 154 deaths. So Pfizer's not behind this. They say they can't control off-label use, but what's going on is that Medicare spending for this has gone up. Medicare providers that are issuing these kinds of injections has gone up. Even in the VA system, the number of such injections has gone up. So that now, um, Depometrol use has actually gone up 35% between 2015 and 2017, equaling out uh, from $133 million in sales to $185 million in sales. That's Depometrol and other versions of that. So this is really eye-opening sort of stuff and it comes from us and from the New York Times. What about women who have rheumatoid arthritis and the risk uh, to their, their offspring, children? I don't know what you say. I generally said that the risk seems to be quite low, but uh, this is a Danish study that looked at over 2,100 uh, women with rheumatoid arthritis and compared that, uh, them to 1.3 million uh, who did not and looked at what the outcome was as far as autoimmune disease in the offspring. And what they showed was eye-opening, that in the offspring of, of women with RA, there was an increased risk of of these events. Actually, it was 1.7% um, had RA versus 0.7% in those who didn't have RA would have um, subsequent rheumatoid arthritis in the offspring. Turns out the hazard ratio of the offspring having RA is 2.69. For thyroid disease, 2.19. And for uh, epilepsy, 1.61. There were a few others scattered in there, not significant. This is very eye-opening. I'm gonna end with a Twitter poll that I did this week, what would you prefer if you're, when your doctor walks in to greet you? Uh, a hello, uh, a handshake, a fist bump, or a hug? The poll with 100 responses says, say 55% or 45% say want a hello, 45% want a handshake, 5% want a hug, and 5% want a fist bump. So if you're hugging your patients right out, right as soon as they enter the room, you're probably creeping them out. If you're giving them a fist bump, you're getting quizzical looks. Go with the handshake and say hello. That seems to suffice for most people. That's it for this week at Room Now. Go to the website to see this and more. Tell your friends about the podcast. We'll see you next week.